just join me for an hour every week, hopefully with your cup of tea in hand, um, whether you're listening here on Radio Africa 1804 or on demand at your convenience via SoundCloud or Spotify, I appreciate you taking this journey with me. Um, I'm sure most of, of our Radio Africa 1804 listeners know that I'm the daughter of Florence Camo, who was on Monday through Saturday um, at 1 p.m. And my mom has been on the radio for as long as I can remember, right? And she spent the last year, or maybe even more than a year, trying to encourage me to do the same. And nine weeks ago, I finally stepped out of my comfort zone and, and started Dots and Tea. And I kind of, I just can't believe it's actually already been nine weeks. But, you know, as afraid as I was, I was thinking, how will my voice sound? You know, will people care about what I have to say? Um, can I find a way to communicate authentically? Can I be vulnerable and share my experiences, my personal experiences? Um, can I host a show, podcast, whatever, that becomes a catalyst for difficult conversations? Can I find a way to encourage people to really look within themselves or maybe motivate or challenge anyone to make a positive change in their everyday life? You know, can I help someone navigate through a tough moment? I had so many questions and really reasons to talk myself out of doing this, but I, I have to give credit where credit is due. And if my mom had not pushed me, I probably would not have started, you know, um, nine weeks ago today, I got a call from my mom around two o'clock in the afternoon saying, are you ready to start your show today? And I'm like, no mom, not really. I'm not prepared. And she didn't back down. She said, well, you have a couple of hours to get ready, to get prepared, because I already announced to, to all of our listeners today that you would be on the air at 6 p.m. So just like that, I had to figure it out. And, and I started with um, Unconscious Bias and Little Fires Everywhere because I had just finished that show and loved it and thought it was so meaningful. And Unconscious Bias is something that I, I deal with every day. So made it happen. You know, I needed that push. Not because I didn't want to do it. I really did. I really wanted to do it. But because I hesitate to start new things. Um, things I've never done because I like to do things that I know I'm good at. You know, I like to practice new things before I do them in front of people. And I've always been that way. And there was, there was no real way to practice, you know, doing thoughts and tea. So I just kind of had to do it. And my mom knew that and she pushed me. I was thinking about our topic for today and I thought, it kind of relates to a few weeks ago when I talked about raising black children in America. You know, I shared um, four of the key things that I believe are important or even crucial lessons for black children. And one of them was that we have to teach them that they will have to do more and they will have to be better in order to even get their foot in the door. And I stand by that, right? It's the truth. As black people, we have to be excellent to get average pay. Or we have to be extraordinary to get a bit of recognition and slightly better pay. 
that's just our reality. Shouldn't be that way, and hopefully it will change, but today, that is the reality. So yeah, we have to prepare our children for that. But I think it's important that we understand and and acknowledge the kind of impact this has on our mental well-being. That's a very heavy weight to carry, and it's not the only weight we have on our shoulders. Many of us are driven by the idea that we have to be great, right? You know, our parents sacrificed to give us access to these opportunities, so we can't squander them. We have people depending on us to do well. We have to represent our communities and make a way for those who will come after us. So we work hard. And as we're working and trying our hardest, we're also dealing with racism and classism and police brutality and the inequity of the criminal justice system. You know, we're dealing with all of these things on top of the pressure we put on ourselves to be great. You know, while we're pushing forward and trying to be great, we're bombarded with images of people who look like us being attacked and killed. You know, this past week, we've had this young black lady in Wisconsin who was at a red light minding her own business when four white men threw lighter fluid and a lighter at her face, you know, as they screamed racial slurs at her. We're reading articles about the fact that in less than a month, six black bodies have been found lifeless and hanging in trees all over in Texas, in New York, California, Georgia, Oregon. We're dealing with constant microaggressions from colleagues and neighbors and strangers. And that's all on top of the regular everyday life struggles, right? So you kind of have to be foolish to think that, that this will not affect your psyche. It's just not possible. You may be able to push through it, and most of us do. You know, we found a way to stay focused and not lose our cool. We go out into the world every day, right? Despite our worries and our fears, we're able to succeed and thrive and love and raise families. But at what cost? Before you even start layering in other things like relationships and marriage and family issues and health issues and work-related stress or economic insecurity, we already have so many reasons to seek professional help. And yet, you know, many of us don't, partly because access for us to mental health care is limited, but largely because the black community does not trust the medical community. And, and that's understandable, right? Historically, blacks have been abused by the medical system. Whether they lured us in by making us think they actually wanted to provide health care, when in fact their intention was to abuse us or use our bodies. Research shows that 20% of people who identify as Black or African American are more likely to deal with mental health issues. According to Columbia University, young Black people um, ages 18 to 25 experience higher rates of mental health problems, but yet the rates of mental health service utilization in the Black community are much lower compared to whites of the same age. The reality is we make up 14% or 14 plus a little percent of this country's population but we make up 40% of the homeless population and 50% of the prison population. And, um, and our children make up 45% of the foster care system. 
I say all of this to say, I mean, there are so many reasons why we should be making an effort to take care of our mental well-being. And more often than not, part of that means seeking professional help. As someone who has um, gone to therapy at different points in my life, I can tell you that part of the problem is that we need more black therapists, right? We need more black therapists to, to work in our communities. And we need non-black therapists to be unbiased, right? We need them to be able to understand our cultures and the issues plaguing our communities. You know, just to, to better prepare them to support, right? So that they can responsibly care for and support our communities. A white therapist who is not able to acknowledge their privilege will most likely not be able to provide adequate care for a young black person who is, you know, battling with anxiety or depression due to his exposure, her exposure to racism or incarceration or discrimination and violence. So the mental health care system needs work for sure. They've got a lot of fences to mend and bridges to build with the black community. But we need to work on ourselves too. We need to acknowledge the feelings we have and seek help so that we can not only heal, but just grow and blossom. Living your best life, you know, everyone's saying that, you know, like, I want to live my best life. Well, living your best life doesn't mean just having success and making money and being in a good, a fun relationship. No, it means like really loving yourself. It means living authentically, loving and accepting all the parts of you and working on yourself every day so that you can bring your best self to every situation. I'm, I'm a big believer in self-care, right? I love, I, I enjoy taking care of myself, right? I enjoy going to the spa. I, I enjoy getting my nails done, getting my hair done, like all the little things that make me happy. But, you know, going to the spa every month to relax doesn't help you if you're not also taking care of what's going on in your mind. All the massages in the world will not make your anxiety go away. You have to deal with it. Try to understand the root of it and make a conscious choice to manage it. Right? And I say manage on purpose here because it may not be something that you can control. So I can't say, you know, do X, Y, Z and you'll be able to control it. The best we can do is learn to manage it. When I was in high school, you know, my teachers described me as focused and calm, collected. Regardless of what was going on around, I was pretty good at keeping my cool and not letting my emotions get the best of me. And my mom recently reminded me of this story. Um, I took French in high school. My freshman year, I was doing so well that my teacher encouraged me to participate in the national French exam. And I don't even I don't even know if that's still a thing, but you know, at the time there was this national exam, you know, to to rate people's capacity in French across the country. And there were a couple of other people in my class who took it as well, but I ended up coming in second place in the country my freshman year. I was the only person in my school who placed in the top 50. So it was a big, it was a big honor for my school. You know, they put a plaque and like our academic hall of fame. It was a good, great honor for my teacher and an honor for me. So I participated again my sophomore, junior, senior year, and each time I placed somewhere in the top five nationally. 
so at the end of my senior year, um, we were, there was an event, right? Like a, a senior award ceremony to recognize all my classmates in a bunch of different areas, everything from athletics to academics. So I had been told in advance that I would be receiving an award, so I should do my best to be there. And I was pretty active in school. I was the president of a club. I got pretty good grades all around. So I was excited to go. And I did not know that I'd be in for a bit of a surprise, you know. So as they're going through all the awards, I'm cheering on my classmates and clapping and, you know, being happy for everyone. And they get to the French Award. And I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was basically an award for the student who displayed excellence in the subject throughout all four years. So naturally, I look to my parents and I say, oh, this is the one I'm getting. So I don't know if you've ever been in those shoes, but you know how you kind of start to prepare yourself when you just know your name is about to be called? And, um, and to my surprise, it was not me. And they called someone else with white skin and no national French exam success. So I was shocked. I was embarrassed and mostly just, just sad, you know, but I kept my cool. I clapped and cheered her on and okay. A few moments later, they announced that the next award would be for fashion. So I looked at my parents again and I'm like, oh, this must be the one, right? I had successfully planned and executed a fashion show for my school where I actually showcased my own designs. And yet again, my name wasn't called. I kept my game face on. I clapped, you know, made it through the rest of the evening. And when I got home that night, I just cried. I cried in the shower. You know, I cried out of frustration. I had worked my butt off and received zero recognition for all of my efforts. But that's, that's life, right? So the next day, I moved on like none of it mattered. I put on a good outfit and made myself look <laughs> as good on the outside as I wanted to be feeling on the inside. And just moved forward, went to class, sat right in front of that French teacher, right? Participated in the class, raised my hand, helped, and even corrected her in her French for a few things. In hindsight, winning a couple of stupid awards, okay, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but at the time, that was my world. But I came to understand that that was my training. My training for what things would be like when corporate America ignored and downplayed my successes. It prepared me to deal with managers and bosses who wouldn't show any interest in my career growth or recognize my accomplishments or pay me what I deserved. It, um, definitely prepared me for clients who would be so happy at the end of a consultation with me on the phone and then be so disappointed when they met me because my skin didn't match my voice. We are constantly being taught to keep that poker face on. Keep that poker face on regardless of whether or not you are disappointed you know, when you are disrespected, when you are being mistreated, even when you are afraid, keep your poker face on. We have to be tough enough to survive these encounters, but not too tough so we don't come off as, you know, angry black men and women. We're taught not to bring our whole selves to work because that might make other people uncomfortable or it may make them misjudge you. It's exhausting. Exhausting. We're, we're kids sitting in classrooms where there's only one or two of us as the teacher talks about slavery. 
Can you remember how hard it was to watch clips of Roots in class when you're surrounded by white people? Can you remember the rage that it would build when you're you know, when your professor would rattle off demographics about all the ways black people aren't measuring up to their white counterparts. Our brains are just processing all of that, even if we're trying to do our best to ignore it, even if we're trying to keep that poker face on. Our brains are taking it in. That's a lot. You know, I think about my my life and my career path and it makes so much sense that I became an event planner in my adult life right for many reasons on the fun side I was the one who enjoyed planning things for my family I enjoyed executing events that was that was something that was always in me but one of the biggest reasons why I could do it and why I could be successful at it was because I could handle pressure I can handle stress. You know, I don't think people understand the level of stress that comes with that type of work. Event planner is always on the top 10 list of most stressful jobs in America. This past year in 2019, it was number six after jobs like military personnel and firefighter. So while I'm here, you know, <laughs> putting centerpieces on the tables, my stress level is somewhat similar to someone running into a burning building. When you're planning events, you know, managing these hundreds of details becomes just another day to you. But for the client, it's not just another day. It's the most important day of their lives. It's their wedding day. It's the launch of their new business or product that they've spent years putting their blood, sweat, and tears into. So your regular day is their biggest day. So think about the heavy load of stress that comes with that. But, you know, you couldn't see it. You couldn't see that when you looked at me. I was an expert at keeping calm while my mind was racing 200 miles per hour. I was complimented by clients and bosses for having nerves of steel. And it served me well. I just, you know, I just didn't realize what it was doing to me mentally. It's like, I'm sitting here constantly shaking a bottle of soda and expecting there to be zero consequences when I open it up. I was 34 when I had my first panic attack or anxiety attack. I had just started a new job. I was in the midst of rebuilding my life after a huge breakup. I was trying to figure out how I had spent the last five years sharing all my bills with someone. And now all of a sudden, I would have to be able to take them all on my own. I was going 200 miles an hour. And I, I never stopped to check in on myself. You know, I never checked in with me because I'm Lori, right? I'm Lori and this is what I do. I push through things. I succeed. I don't crumble under pressure. Well, <laughs> I, I crumbled. In that moment, my anxiety was triggered by something completely unrelated to all the things I had been dealing with. And I want to share this with you because I think it's important, you know, that we understand how this all unravels, how it happens. My entire career has been about thinking of all the ways something can go wrong so that I can be prepared. When I am planning an event, when I am putting together a run of show, 
when I am working with vendors, I have to have a plan B, C, D, E, etc. Like I have to think of all the different things that can happen so I'm not caught off guard and I can react quickly and keep the show moving forward. You know, like I said earlier, this is how I'm wired. And it has definitely served me well. I've gotten to where I am today. Analyzing all the variables has given me the ability not to break a sweat when something goes wrong because I'm prepared. I thought about this. And if I didn't think about this exactly, I thought of something close to it. So I've got a plan G that might just work out. If I'm going to be excellent at something, I have to be prepared. So my mind has this way of just working and thinking about all of these different things so that I can be prepared. So on this day, I was set to travel. And I'm only a month or so into this new job. It's a big job. And I need to impress my leadership, right? I need them to see that they made the right choice when they hired me. So instead of doing what I had seen other people in the company do, which is like take a, you know, take a day, work from home so that I would be a little bit more relaxed and able to plan for my trip. I went in the office. I went in the office. I worked all day, did everything I was supposed to do. And then I rushed home to you know finish packing my bag and then I hopped in an Uber to head to JFK and a few minutes into the drive I realized that I'm I'm a little bit congested you know I can't really take in a deep breath in you know from both of my nostrils so my mind starts to focus on that right I'm honing in on the fact that I can't really take a deep breath then I start thinking, the timing of this sucks. I'm going overseas and I might be getting sick. What will I do if it really hits me while I'm out there? Then my mind jumps back to, well, what if it hits me before I even get there? What if I feel like I can't breathe while I'm on this long flight? And just like that, my brain just, you know, it went into overdrive. Now, I can tell you how this all happened now because I made an effort to understand my mind and how it works. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't notice all of these things happening in my brain, right? These were just thoughts that felt like they were passing thoughts, no big deal. But then all of a sudden, my heart started to race. It starts like beating really fast. And then I start to sweat. And then within seconds, my vision gets blurry. And then my ears started to ring. And I just, I just felt like I could not get enough air. I rolled my window down, took a sip of water, and it just kept getting worse. I'm stuck in traffic, and the, the Uber driver just keeps looking at me through the rearview mirror, like probably probably wishing he hadn't picked me up, right? Like, why did I pick this person to put in my car? Because he could tell something was happening. I honestly thought my body was shutting down. I started to tremble, and and then I was cold, but I was also sweating, and my heart was just beating so fast and so hard. I couldn't understand what was happening to me and I start to cry. You know, I'm thinking like something's breaking down in my body. This is the end. And I call my parents to tell them something's terribly wrong. I'm describing my symptoms to them, you know, asking if they thought it was because maybe my blood sugar was low or did they think I was having a heart attack? I mean, I was just, I was losing it. And needless to say, I never made it on that flight, right? I went to an urgent care instead. And after checking my vitals and, and listening to me describe all these symptoms, the doctor just said, I think you had an anxiety attack. 
and I'm looking at him like, what? I don't, I don't have that. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And he asked me, you know, are you dealing with any new stresses? Have there been any major changes in your life? And I kind of laughed it off because I'm like, my whole life is stress. Like, that's not new. I was just like, something is happening here. Like, I need you to figure it out. I was convinced that there was something else wrong with me and I wanted him to fix it. But he wouldn't budge. And he was convinced that it was all in my mind. All my tests came back normal. So I went home and every time I thought about rescheduling that flight, it would start up again. And not because I'm afraid of flying. I fly all the time and I fly for extremely long hours. But I think it's because I was on my way to the airport when it happened. So I was associating the panic with the flight. And then I started to panic at the thought of having another panic attack while I was on the flight. It's this like very tricky cycle. In the weeks after this incident, you know, my anxiety was a constant. I was walking around with this heightened alertness and it was wearing me down. So I finally got help and I was so surprised that my therapist did not want to stay focused on the incident, right? The purpose of me coming here is because I had an anxiety, anxiety attack and now I can't stop thinking about having another one. So I want to talk about what was going on that day so we can figure out what is wrong. But all she wanted to do was understand who I was, where I came from, how I got to be where I am, how I think about things, how I process things, how I process my emotions. So I'm thinking, okay, she's the professional. So I went with it because I wanted to feel better. And it was through talking about myself and different things that I had experienced in my life, my childhood, my past, that I realized anxiety had always been a part of my life. In replaying memories in my mind, I started to identify moments as a child, moments as a teenager, moments as a young adult, where my body was trying to tell me to take a step back. I just wasn't getting the message. I, I didn't understand the message. I realized that my ability to push my feelings down, keep calm on the surface, be strong and push forward, took away my brain's ability to separate real danger from just a stressful moment. You know, sometimes people in our lives tell us things about ourselves and we don't understand them in the moment. And then one day it all just makes so much sense. One of my old bosses was talking about me, you know, to a group of people and she called me a duck and I didn't really get it. And then she said, you know, on top of the water, I'm calm, I'm still, and I'm graceful. But underneath where no one can see, my legs are working fast and furious to get me where I need to go. And that's what many of us are doing. We're so focused on what we're trying to do, who we're trying to support, who we're trying to show up for. And we don't want the world around us to see that it's taking a lot of effort to actually deliver. And so we present this, this calmness, right? This, I got it under control look, but on the inside, 
there's like a thousand things working in a thousand different directions in order to make this happen. I've always felt the need to hide how hard I was working or how scared I was or hide the fact that I may be freaking out inside. Right? Because I'm thinking back to a classroom when I'm a child and people around me who don't look like me are getting rewarded and recognized for little effort. And I'm trying so hard to get that same little bit of recognition, but I don't want anybody to think that I have to try harder than them. So I do it when no one's looking. Anxiety is defined as a normal and often um, uh, healthy emotion, right? That comes up when something is wrong. It presents itself as maybe nervousness or um, tension, worry, um, restlessness. But it's meant to protect us from dangerous situations. When we're feeling anxious, our bodies go on high alert and our brains activate that fight or flight response system, right? Anxiety raises our heart rate. It speeds up our breathing. And all of this is to, um, from what I understand, is to like try to get the body to concentrate on sending blood flow to the brain to prepare us for this difficult, intense, or dangerous situation. That's the feeling of anxiety. Now, an anxiety disorder is when that feeling of anxiousness becomes excessive, right? It's being in a state of constant apprehension or constant fear or a state of panic when there's really no danger present. So I want to break that down a little, a little more um, so we can really understand, right? So the amygdala, which is known as the... Um, emotional part of the brain serves as kind of like an alarm system for your body. And we get that feeling of anxiety when the emotional brain sends signals that overpower our cognitive brain, right? The, the part of our brain that is like actually looking at what's really happening. So, Imagine having this like super high tech alarm system in your house, right? It is meant to notify you when intruders are trying to break in or um, it's supposed to go off when there's smoke and there could be fire or maybe when um, carbon monoxide, right, is taking over the air in your home. All of these things that are dangerous to you. So the alarm goes off to warn you that you are in danger. Now imagine that alarm getting way too sensitive from overuse. So now when a bird lands on your roof or near your window, it triggers the motion sensor, which sets off the alarm. That's what's happening when anxiety is taking over your mind and body in moments when it's not needed. It's being triggered for a bird landing on your roof, not for somebody trying to break in. It's, you know, it's important for, for me to note that, um, yes, if other members of your family struggle with anxiety, there's a chance you will as well. So your genetics, are definitely a factor, and so is your diet. Um, but in speaking with people who struggle with anxiety and, and seeking help from professionals, I found that stress, you know, how much stress you're under and how you deal with stress 
is a huge factor. We spend so much time trying to be strong, trying to survive, trying to be brave, trying to be great, and and we have to. Okay. Sorry, everyone. Technical difficulties, but we are back. Um, trying to pick up where I left off. Um, oh, okay. So I was saying that, um, you know, when it comes to us taking care of ourselves, right, being our best selves, we have to take care of our minds as well, not just our bodies. Because whether we realize it or not, we are dealing with a lot, right? Our black skin comes with a lot. Moms who worry every time their sons leave the house, you know, to hang out with friends or to go to a party. Um, Dads who are constantly thinking about how they are going to provide for their families. Um, Today, you know, young black men and women who are in the streets protesting and fighting for equality, trying to make a difference. You have to be strong to do that day in and day out while still trying to live and love and laugh, right? Kids trying to be first in their class. Men and women trying to be seen and and heard at their jobs or in society. That's a lot of stress. None of those efforts, you know, can be fully enjoyed if you aren't in a healthy place mentally. We talked about um, one of my favorite TV shows, This Is Us, and my favorite character on the show, who is Randall, um, played by Sterling K. Brown. And... We learned pretty early on that Randall struggles with anxiety and he has suffered major anxiety attacks throughout his life. And if you watch the show, you know that um, Randall, who was black, was adopted by white parents who were supposed to have a set of triplets. And when one of the triplets um, doesn't make it, they decide to adopt Randall, who was born the same day but abandoned. So Randall, Randall's character has this deep need to make his father proud, to be there for his mother, to be the best, to be the most kind, uh, the most supportive, the most independent, all while dealing with, you know, all the realities that would come with being a black child in a white family living in a white neighborhood. Always pushing himself to, you know, in a way, make his parents feel like adopting him was a good call. Always trying to fit in, to fit in with his white family and to fit in with the black friends he was making. Trying to find his place. And unlike his brother, he doesn't assume that he deserves anything, right? He wants to earn it. He wants to work for it. All that pressure bottled up into a little kid, and he has his first panic attack over over an assignment, like over a homework assignment. Later on in his life, right, he continues to have them. And they're popping up in moments when he's trying to show up for everyone. He's trying to be the best husband. He's trying to be the best dad. I love watching this character on TV because it's normalizing something that we've long suffered in secret. This happens, and there's nothing wrong with you if it's happening to you. When I posted on Instagram that I would be doing a show on anxiety, 
I, I asked people if they struggle with anxiety, right? It was a poll, yes or no. And 91% of you said yes. Sterling K. Brown posted this, um, which I thought was super powerful. He said, anxiety and panic attacks are not signs of weakness. They are signs of trying to remain strong for far too long. And he's so right. We live in a world where we have to be strong just to survive and super strong to thrive. But sometimes it's okay to say, I need help, or I can't, or I had a really rough day and I need a moment to myself, or I don't know how to handle this. It's okay to seek help. We are a community that loves each other and wants the best for each other. So don't be afraid to look for help and guidance. In my quest to figure out how to deal with my anxiety, I've learned that there really isn't a quick fix, definitely not a permanent one. You know, through talking and sharing, I, I look back now at my life and my experiences, and I wonder why I didn't say anything. You know, if I had, I would have learned to manage this anxious feeling much earlier in my life. But no one was really talking about this. It wasn't really something that I could even identify. So I'm making the choice to share. I want to share what I've learned. I want us to talk about it. And, and I know, I know it's not the same for everyone, right? So I'm not at all implying that what works for me will work for you. And I'm definitely not claiming to be an expert. I'm just sharing what I've learned from my experience and my seeking help, the things that have, that have made a difference to me when it comes to this. And so when we think about de-escalating anxiety, I came up with seven tips that I wanted to share with you. Before, well, before even getting to the seven tips, right, I have to reiterate, you know, as I mentioned, there really is no cure, <laughs> you know, it's, and that can feel disappointing, but there are so many things that we can do to help ourselves. The first is going to therapy, and I can't stress that enough, right? We live very busy lives. We're always on the move. So at the very least, therapy is a set amount of time that you can dedicate to yourself. And if you bring your full self to it, if you can allow yourself to be really open and honest about what is going on in your life and around you, it can be extremely beneficial. Speaking to a professional and processing your feelings and really acknowledging them makes all the difference. You know, but I do have to say that not all therapists are, are created equal, right? Don't stay with a therapist if you feel like it's not working. Explore your options. You know, find someone who is knowledgeable, um, someone who understands your culture, and makes an effort to understand your perspective and the things you are dealing with. Find someone that you can afford, right? So you don't have an easy out, an easy excuse to stop going. Find someone who doesn't just listen, someone who challenges you. But also make sure you find someone who doesn't do all the talking. Find someone who gives you good guidance, or better yet, gives you the tools to guide yourself. Find someone who makes you think. Someone who helps you improve your quality of life, right? Because it's not up to them to make the improvements for you. It's only going to work if you are taking action yourself. And if you find that after a few sessions... You know, it seems like areas of your life are falling apart or they're just not getting better. 
then this therapist is probably not the right one for you, right? You want to find someone who encourages you to take care of yourself, to value the things you have in your life, to value the positive relationships around you. That's what you want. You don't want to find someone who makes you so into yourself that you begin feeling more isolated. That's not a good sign. The most important thing is finding someone who encourages you to be kind to yourself. Secondly, I would say, see a professional who understands the chemistry of the body. I went to see a psychiatrist twice, and she had me do a series of blood tests to understand what vitamins and minerals I was deficient in. And we were able to come up with a supplement plan that really helped me. You know, I was low on things like vitamin D3 and iron and B12 and vitamin E and selenium or pantothenic acid, all these things. Like I had no idea what they were, but you need them. So sticking to my regimen has really improved my anxiety. Next, I would say change your diet. You have to figure out the things that don't agree with you. I found that when my stomach isn't really settled, it's easier for my level of anxiety to escalate. Whether it's, you know, staying away from dairy or just remembering to take a daily probiotic, eat things that make you feel good. Pay attention to how you feel after a meal. Are you sluggish? fatigued are you irritable it can be because of what you ate you know when my digestive system isn't working properly my anxiety becomes prevalent so that's diet is super important um next and this is a big one for me is find your triggers in those moments when your panic is coming on you have to be aware enough to catch it before the attack really takes over because, you know, once once it started, you'll have to let it take its course. There, there's no stopping it once it's officially started. But if you can catch it before it goes haywire, you can stop it. You know, for me, I realized that feeling like I can't take a deep breath is major for me. Once my mind notices that, it focuses in and things start to escalate fast. Or when I'm in a tight space, like an elevator, or if I'm in a crowded place, those are triggers for me. So I try to be very cognizant of that. If I know I'm going to be in a situation like that, I try to mentally prepare myself. You know, there's going to be a lot of people there today. It's not really a big deal. I'm only there for a few hours. If I need to leave, I'll just leave. Or... When I have a cold, I'll do that same thing. I'll say to myself, like, all right, feeling a little clogged, but it's not that bad. I can still get a decent amount of air in, and I'll prove it to myself, right? I will take some breaths and, and, and show myself that everything is fine. You have to know your triggers. Sometimes, and most of the time, they will have nothing to do with what's actually stressing you out. But there are these small things that the brain interprets as danger. Number five is focus on your breathing and make meditation an everyday practice. I know it sounds so cliche. I mean, even my mom has been telling me to meditate for years. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. But it really makes a difference. Giving yourself some time to just breathe and not think of anything every day allows you to decompress. So many of us are super wound up all the time. We need to make an effort to unwind. And if I'm being honest, that's hard for me. That's a tough one for me. But I have to make a conscious effort. I use an app that guides me through, you know, two-minute and five-minute breathing exercises. I do the two-minute one in the morning and then the five-minute one before I go to bed. And I'll try my hardest to clear my mind, and sometimes it doesn't work, you know, but I keep trying. Sometimes when I'm trying not to think, my brain is notorious for starting to obsess over the fact that I can't not think, you know, so it's, it's a process, but just start it. It will help. 
And when you're in those moments and you're starting to feel the signs of a panic attack, try to de-escalate it by practicing diaphragmatic breathing. Um, you can look it up online or if you'd like me to send you a link to uh, the techniques to do it, just send me a message on um, my Facebook or my Instagram and I will, I'll send it over to you. It's a really powerful way to control that hyperventilation before it gets there. It slows a rapid heartbeat down and it really creates this like physical sense of comfort. With this breathing, you, you kind of start to feel like you are regaining control of your body. So it's, it's a really good tool. Um, most of the tips that, that I've shared are preventative, right? But finding your triggers and practicing diaphragmatic breathing, these are tools you can use in those like intense high anxiety moments. Another in the moment tool um, is it's simple, right? It's just calling it what it is. Remind yourself in that moment that your mind and body are overreacting. Tell yourself that you are not in danger right? There is no reason for your alarm to be going off right now. It really makes a big difference. You know, you can even take the time to look at your surroundings so that you're seeing and showing yourself that you are safe. And lastly, acupuncture. I mean, acupuncture is not for everybody, but if you are open to it, it can really do wonders for balancing your mind and body. So those are my tips, right? Preventative, on the preventative side, you've got therapy, you know, getting your diet right, maybe practicing um, acupuncture, doing some meditation, or um, seeing someone that can test your levels and see what vitamins and minerals you may need to boost in. And for those in the moment tools to de-escalate the situation, right? When you're in the thick of it, identifying your triggers, right? Understanding exactly what's making your alarm go off. Practicing that diaphragmatic breathing. And then showing yourself that you are not in danger. That can de-escalate things pretty quickly. So those, those, those are my tips. Um, I wanted to share my experience with you. I hope that my experience helps you. Um, if you don't suffer from anxiety, I hope that my experience allows you to be empathetic to those around you who may be dealing with it. It's clear more than ever today that we have to take care of ourselves and we have to take care of each other. So my challenge to you this week is this. If, if you don't struggle with anxiety, don't minimize the feelings of those around you who do. Instead, ask them what it's like, right? Give them the space to talk and share about what they go through. Remind them that they don't have to be so strong all the time. Remind them that they're surrounded by people who love and support them. And, you know, most importantly, show them that you want to understand. Don't treat them like this is a handicap or it's like this weird thing. It's a lot more common than you think. It does not make them somehow less capable. So be supportive and be kind because you might learn something that one day keep you from developing the same issue. And, you know, if you do suffer from anxiety... First and foremost, be kind to yourself. Don't be so hard on you. Don't let the pressure to be excellent or to be perfect or to be strong cripple you. Take the time to understand your mind and the root of this anxiety. I shared seven tips today. Maybe take the time to look into one of them this week. Figure out what works for you. And when you do, please don't keep it to yourself. Tell someone who you think may be dealing with it secretly. 
tell someone who you know doesn't deal with it but can benefit from understanding how it impacts you we don't have to be alone and there's no reason to feel shame or embarrassed your anxiety probably grew because you were trying to be everything to everyone so let someone be there for you as always if you have a friend or a colleague that you think would have enjoyed today's talk please let them know that the show will replay on Wednesday at 6 p.m. Um, next week I'll be talking about empowering language so mark your calendars for next Monday 6 p.m. here on Radio Africa 1804 and remember you can catch up on past episodes on Spotify and on SoundCloud If you enjoy these talks, please share the links on your social media channels. And if you don't enjoy them, please share the links anyway because someone you know might. If you have any thoughts or comments or questions about what I talked about today, please feel free to message me on Facebook at Lori Lee Camo or on Instagram at Lori Lee underscore. Sorry for our technical difficulties today and thank you for listening.